Chapter Seven of the Story of Ab. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of Ab by Stanley Waterloo. Chapter Seven: The Unexpected Happens. It was with scant breath when they reached their respective caves that the boys told the story of the dread which had invaded the marshland. What they reported was no light event, and the next morning their fathers were with them in the treetop, at the safe distance which the wooded crest afforded, and watching with apprehensive eyes the movements of the monster settled in the rugged valley tree. There was slight movement to note. Coiled easily around the bowl, just above where the branches began, and resting a portion of its body upon a thick extending limb, its head and perhaps ten or fifteen feet of its length swinging downward, the great serpent still hung awaiting its prey, ready to launch itself upon any hapless victim which might come within reach. That its appetite would soon be gratified admitted of little doubt. Profiting by the absence of the boys, who while at work made no effort to conceal themselves, Groups of wild horses were already feeding in the lowlands, and the elk and wild ox were visible here and there. The group in the treetop on the crest realised that it had business on hand. The sea serpent was a terror to the cave people, and when one appeared to haunt the river the word was swiftly spread, and they gathered to accomplish its end if possible. With warnings to the boys they left behind them, the fathers sped away in different directions, one up, the other day on the river's bank, stripe-faced to seek the help of some of the cave people, and one ear to arouse the shell people, as they were called, whose home was beside a creek some miles below. Into the home of the little colony one ear went swinging a little later, demanding to see the headman of the fishing village, and there ensued an earnest conversation of short sentences, but one which caused immediate commotion. To the hill-dwellers, the rare advent of a sea-serpent was comparatively a small matter, but it was a serious thing to the shell-folk. The sea-serpent might come up the creek and be among them at any moment, ravaging their community. The shell-people were grateful for the warning, but there were few of them at home, and less than a dozen could be mustered to go with one ear to the rendezvous. They were too late, the hardy people who came up to assail the serpent, because the serpent had not waited for them. The two boys roosting in the tree-top on the height had beheld what was not pleasant to look upon, for they had seen a yearling of the aurochs enveloped by the thing which whipped down suddenly from the branches, and the crushed quadruped had been swallowed in the serpent's way. But the dinner which might suffice it for weeks had not, in all entirety, the effect upon it which would follow the swallowing of a wild deer by its degenerate descendants of the Amazon or Indian forests. The serpent did not lie a listless mass, helplessly digesting the product of the tragedy upon the spot of its occurrence, but crawled away slowly through the reeds, and instinctively to the water, into which it slid with scarce a splash, and then went drifting lazily away upon the current towards the sea. It had been years since one of these big water serpents had invaded the river at such a distance from its mouth, and never came another up so far. There were causes promoting rapidly the extinction of their dreadful kind, 
Three or four days were required before Ab and Oak realised, after what had taken place, that there were in the community any more important personages than they, and that they had work before them if they were to continue in their glorious career. When everyday matters finally asserted themselves, there was their pit not yet completed. Because of their absence, a greater aggregation of beasts was feeding in the little valley. Not only the aurochs, the ancient bison, the urus, the progenitor of the horned cattle of today, wild horse and great elk and reindeer were seen within short distances from each other, but the big hairy rhinoceros of the time was crossing the valley again and rioting in its herbage, or wallowing in the pools where the valley dipped downward to the marsh. The mammoth with its young had swung clumsily across the area of rich feed, and, lurking in its train, eyeing hungrily and bloodthirstily the mammoth's calf, had crept the great cave tiger. The monster cave bear had shambled through the high grass, seeking some small food in default of that which might follow the conquest of a beast of size. The uncomely hyenas had gone slinking here and there, and had found something worthy their foul appetite. All this change had come about because the two boys, being boys and full of importance, had neglected their undertaking for about a week, and had talked each in his own home with an air intended to be imposing, and had met each other with much dignity of bearing at their favourite perching place in the treetop on the hillside. When there came to them finally a consciousness that, to remain people of magnitude in the world, they must continue to do something, they went to work bravely. The change which had come upon the valley in their brief absence tended to increase their confidence, for, as thus exhibited, early as was the age, the advent of the human being, young or old, somehow affected all animate nature and terrified it, and the boys saw this. Not that the great beast did not prey upon man. But then, as now, the man to the great beast was something of a terror, and man, weak as he was, knew himself and recognised himself as the head of all creation. The mammoth, the huge thick-coated rhinoceros, saber-tooth, the monstrous tiger, or the bear, or the hyena, or the loping wolf, or short-bodied and vicious wolverine, were to him, even then, but lower creatures. Man felt himself the master of the world, and his children inherited the perception. Work in the pit progressed now rapidly, and not a great number of days passed before it had attained the depth required. The boy at work was compelled, when emerging, to climb a dried branch which rested against the pit's edge, and the lookout in the tree exercised an extra caution, since his comrade below could no longer attain safety in a moment. But the work was done at last, that is, the work of digging, and there remained but the completion of the pitfall, a delicate though not a difficult matter. Across the pit, and very close together, were laid criss-crosses of slender branches, brought in armfuls from the forest. Over these dry grass was spread, thinly but evenly, and over this again dust and dirt and more grass and twigs, all precautions being observed to give the place a natural appearance. In this the boys succeeded very well. Shrewd must have been the animal of any sort which could detect the trap. Their chief work done, the boys must now wait wisely. The place was deserted again, and no nearer approach was made to the pitfall 
than the tree-tops of the hillside. There the boys were to be found every day, eager and anxious and hopeful as boys are generally. There was not occasion for getting closer to the trap, for, from their distant perch, its surface was distinctly visible, and they could distinguish if it had been broken in. Those were days of suppressed excitement for the two. They could see the buffalo and wild horses moving here and there, but fortune was still perverse, and the trap was not approached. Before its occupation by them, the place where they had dug had appeared the favourite feeding place. Now, with all perversity, the wild horses and other animals grazed elsewhere, and the boys began to fear that they had left some traces of their work which revealed itself to the wily beasts. On one day, for an hour or two, their hearts were in their mouths. There issued from the forest to the west the stately Irish elk. It moved forward across the valley to the waters on the other side, and, after drinking its fill, began feeding directly towards the tree clump. It reached the immediate vicinity of the pitfall, and stood beneath the trees, fairly outlined against the opening beyond, and affording to the almost breathless couple a splendid spectacle. A magnificent creature was the great elk of the time of the cavemen, the Irish elk, as those who study the past have named it, because its bones have been found so frequently in what are now the preserving peat bonds of Ireland but the elk passed beyond the sight of the watchers, and so their bright hopes fell. The crispness of full autumn had come one morning, when Ab and Oak met as usual, and looked out across the valley to learn if anything had happened in the vicinity of the pitfall. The hoar-frost, lying heavily on the herbage, made the valley resemble a sea of silver, checkered and spotted all over darkly. These dark spots and lines were the traces of such animals as had been in the valley during the night or towards early morning. Leading everywhere were heavy trails and light ones, telling the story of the night. But very little heed to these things was paid by the ardent boys. They were too full of their own affairs. As they swung into place together upon their favourite limb and looked across the valley, they uttered a simultaneous and joyous shout. Something had taken place at the pitfall. All about the trap the surface of the ground was dark, and the area of darkness extended even to the little bank of the swamp on the riverside. Careless of danger, the boys dropped to the ground, and spears in hand ran like deer towards the scene of their weeks of labour. Side by side they bounded to the edge of the excavation, which now yawned open to the sky. They had triumphed at last, as they saw what the pitfall held, they yelled in unison, and danced wildly around the opening in a very height of boyish triumph. The exultation was fully justified, for the pitfall held a young rhinoceros, a creature only a few months old, but so huge already that it nearly filled the excavation. It was utterly helpless in the position it occupied. It was wedged in, incapable of moving more than slightly in any direction. Its long snout, with its sprouting pair of horns, was almost level with the surface of the ground, and its small bright eyes leered wickedly at its noisy enemies. It struggled clumsily upon their approach, but nothing could relieve the hopelessness of its plight. All about the pitfall the earth was ploughed in furrows, and beaten down by the feet of some monstrous animal. 
Eminently the calf was in the company of its mother when it fell a victim to the art of the pitfall diggers. It was plain that the mother had spent most of the night about her young, in a vain effort to release it. Well did the cave boys understand the signs, and, after their first wild outburst of joy over the capture, a sense of the delicacy, not to say danger, of their situation came upon them. It was not well to interfere with the family affairs of the rhinoceros. Where had the mother gone? They looked about, but could see nothing to justify their fears. Only for a moment, though, did their sense of safety last. Hardly had the echo of their shouting come back from the hillside than there was a splashing and rasping of bushes in the swamp, and the rush of some huge animal towards the little ascent leading to the valley proper. There needed no word from either boy. The frightened couple bounded to the tree of refuge, and had barely began clambering up its tree than there arose to view, mad with rage and charging viciously, the mother of the calf rhinoceros. End of chapter 7